You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work as part of your, your ministry and your heart for the people of this world from every religion and culture. And Lord, we ask that you may give us the, the heart to be sympathetic towards um, anyone that is created in your image. I ask you, Lord, that as I present today, that you may send your Holy Spirit to guide us. Give us clarity to know how to reach out to our brothers and sisters and to allow them to see um, what it really means to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to go quickly with you to the book of Acts, chapter 17. I always start with a biblical passage because I believe that our mission should be guided by the word. And so the book of Acts, chapter 17, it's a story that's very much known to us. And it shows us a time when Paul was going into Athens and there he finds himself uh, on Mars Hill. He's in the middle of a situation where He's with scholars, intellectuals of his time, artists, poets. And the Bible tells us in verse 16 that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so in verse 17 it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, and day by day with those who happened to be there. And so the story continues that they kind of... Um, start engaging with him and ask him to know more about his teachings. And then it says in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship and even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. And he goes and explains this God that he, that he worships. At the end, in, in verse 27, it says, God did this so that men will seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of you, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In verse 34, it says that a few people come to believe in him. And we're very familiar with this because oftentimes a quote by Ellen White is used to kind of measure Paul's effectiveness in this particular scenario. Uh, she says in uh, Review and Herald, uh, Paul standing in the midst of Mars Hill before the most educated intellectual met logic with logic, philosophy with philosophy, learning with learning, and oratory with oratory. At the end of his labors, he looked at the result and could see only the three who had been benefited. He decided that henceforth he will maintain the simplicity of the gospel and he will preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this verse is, is connected to his time in Corinthians then later on where he decided, I'm going to present a more simpler gospel um, for the people that I'm trying to reach. However, this quote just on its own it's sometimes taken as to say we should reject everything that Paul did <laughs> in Acts chapter 17. But Ellen White does have something positive to say of Acts 17. Actually here in Acts of the Apostles, she says this. She says, Paul's words contain a treasure of knowledge for the church. This is completely different from <laughs> what we're reading before. A treasure of knowledge for the church. He was in a position where he might easily have said, that which would have irritated his proud listeners and brought himself into difficulty. Had his oration been a direct attack upon their gods and the great men of the city, he would have been in danger of meeting the fate of Socrates. But with tact, and I like this, born of divine love, he carefully drew their minds away from the heathen deities and by revealing to them the true God who was to them unknown. And so here what we're seeing is that Ellen White, although she is balanced in her views, she says, look, Paul, at the moment when he was there with the intellectual, began to argue a little bit and use intellect in order to reach out to them. 
And I've seen in, at least in my ministry, in the time that I've been in this ministry, that oftentimes when you're working with Muslims, many people believe that arguing is the way to attract them, right? To use intellect, to really learn everything about the Quran in order to debate with them, right? This is often what we see. But Ellen White says that Paul was very careful in not attacking their gods, right? Very careful in being sensitive in making sure that they didn't feel <laughs> that he was attacking them. Actually, in the verse, uh, what verse was it? Um, in, in verse 23, he says, For as I have walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. Sorry, it was the verse before that I was trying to look for. He says, I see that in every way you are very religious. I like this phrase that Paul uses, right? He says, I've looked at you and see that you're a very religious person. How would you feel if somebody will come to you, the first interaction, and tell you the God that you worship isn't true, <laughs> right? You're worshiping some pagan God. You wouldn't be open to be able to speak with that person. But Paul recognizes their religiosity and says, I, I, I notice, I see that you're religious. As we're working with our Muslim brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge that they are <laughs> very religious individuals, right? They, they pray very often, right? They, they think about their religious life throughout the day. And if we can start on this particular aspect, it opens up a lot of doors for us to be able to interact with them. So I believe that Ellen White gives us the balance of not falling into the trap or just trying to argue, but rather being open to also engage on that religious level in order to connect with them. So today I want us to look at a bit of the history of how this religion came about and also some of the, the more uh, basic aspects of the faith. Because as I mentioned at the start, if you understand their religion, you can understand their culture and you can be more respectful uh, to the individuals that you're trying to reach. Now, does anyone here know anything about Muhammad? <laughs> Have you heard about this, this name before. What, what do you know about him? Tell me. Yes, people travel in order to emulate what he did when he ran away from Mecca to Medina, right? And, and back forth. So that's very good. What else have you heard from, from Muhammad? Yeah. So you will say, Muhammad, peace be upon him in English. Yes. Yeah, this is what is taught. Yes, um, actually in the Quran, Isaac is not the one that sacrificed, but rather Ishmael <laughs> is the one that sacrificed in the Quran. So very good, very good. So let me start off with that basic then. You guys know much here, but I'll give you some basics. So Muslims believe that Prophet Muhammad, um, through the angel Gabriel, received revelations from God. And these revelations were given over the course of 23 years. So Muhammad was born actually in 570. That's what the historians say. And in his childhood, he actually lost his mother and his father at a very, very young age and was raised by the, the father of the clan uh, called Abu Talib. And it is said that at his young age, he began to show some spirit of religiosity. He was very reverent to uh, to the beliefs of, of his time, but he was also seeing that the individuals in his community were beginning to worship idols. And he was becoming very much sad of what was happening around him. So he will go to Mount Hiram in Mecca and actually go into a cave to meditate upon the idolatry that was happening in his time. And as he was there in the year 610, it is said that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, you are the prophet of God. And from then onward, he would receive, not all the time, but little by little, little revelations from, from Gabriel, you know, coming directly from, from God. And now, one thing that you need to know is that Muhammad was thought to be illiterate, okay? So he did not write anything down. Uh, he did not write the Quran. He just recited whatever he received from the angel. And whatever he recited was then heard by his listeners, and they will write it down on leaves, on stones, and all these different things that were written were then gathered, and that is what is considered to be the Quran today. That's all the gatherings of these writings. 
And so, actually, if you speak to a Muslim, they will tell you that this whole process is Muhammad's miracle, that because he was illiterate and being able to speak these divine words and make the, the Quran, he is then performing some type of miracle because how can an illiterate man produce such a beautiful writing, right? So this is what, what they consider. Now, this Quran, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this because the Quran is part of the Muslim's life throughout the whole day. You need to understand exactly how they use it. The Quran is not understood the same way as we understand the Bible. Um, the way that we understand Revelation, at least from our perspective in the Adventist church, we believe that prophets were guided by the Holy Spirit and they wrote the scriptures, but God did not dictate precisely what they had to write. There are some parts in the scriptures where God is, says exactly what they're supposed to write, but we don't believe that there was a verbal dictation all of the time, right? We, they were inspired, but we see differences in their characters. Paul writes differently from Peter, etc., etc. This is not the case with the Quran. With the Quran, they believe that God literally <laughs> told Muhammad through Gabriel exactly what he had to write. This means that every word in the Quran is the word of God. It's the literal word of God. So if you were to tell a Muslim that the Quran was changed or that they have some type of, um, not transcripts, I'm looking for manuscripts, that you have manuscripts of the Quran that you can date back and see that there were some words that were changed, they will feel offended that you're changing the words of God. <laughs> so you have to be very careful in your way of interacting with them. So the Quran is inerrant, and because of that, the Arabic language of the Quran <laughs> is seen as a superior language over all the languages of the world. Uh, matter of fact, when I, when I read the commentaries on the Quran, when I'm studying it a, a few times, you can notice that they even analyze the letters of Arabic. And in the letters, they see how God manifests himself through the letters. <laughs> you know, so it's very interesting the way that they perceive this Quran. So reciting the Quran in Arabic in particular is very, very important to them. Matter of fact, uh, when I met one of my friends in, in Egypt, the first time I was, I was engaging with, with the Quran, um, I asked the individual, um, if I read the Quran in English, and I prayed that prayer in English, will God accept my prayer? And he says, no. <laughs> I said, so if I become a Muslim, I'm supposed to learn Arabic in order for God to listen to me. And he said, yes. So I said, I can't be saved without <laughs> learning Arabic then. He said, no, you cannot be saved. <laughs> right? Yes, this, yes, go ahead, go ahead. Like in Pakistan and these countries that, um, where they don't, speak Arabic, but they are taught to, to read to, to and recite. write mm -hmm. Arabic, they have no idea what they're saying. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and exactly. Um, I, was, I was just in, in school at the University of Michigan, Dearborn, and I was the only non-Arab in the class. <laughs> there were only Arabs in the class. And, you know, they, they speak Arabic, some of them. They speak Arabic as their mother tongue. But the Arabic that is spoken today, the dialects, are not the Arabic of the Quran. The Quran has a special Arabic that can, for us can feel like a King James Version in its very olden time. But when, like you said, when I ask them, do you understand, you, an Arabic speaker, do you understand when you're reading the Quran? And most of them will tell me, no, I, we don't understand. <laughs> you see, so that, that is the, the case. And as you're saying, those outside of the Arab world that don't even speak the language, they're forced to learn Arabic in order for them to be able to pray and to perform uh, the religious rituals. Yeah. Also, mm -hmm. the translations, like the Quran into English, and these now these translations are not considered the Quran. No, no, they're considered interpretations of the Quran. They're not considered so the Quran. You can't even have a debate with them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. This is true. So it's an interesting way. And another point that I want to bring out is because the language is seen as the language of God, the Quran is also seen as having some type of magic power for some people. I won't say for all, but for some people. So 
you will notice that some Muslims will even sleep with it under their pillows sometimes. Or I, I remember some friends that had demonic spirits visiting them. They will play the Quran in their home to kind of protect them from these spirits. So this is the type of way that they view the Quran. Now, very important, if I did this, like, like I'm doing right now, here, you guys don't have any problem with me putting my Bible here. But you can't do that with a Quran. <laughs> you know, and if a Muslim comes to your church and sees the Bibles in the pews and placed around, they're going to be completely offended by that. Some of them can be very offended by the way that you interact with your, with your Bible. Because they appreciate and honor their Quran. <laughs> Right? And they expect that if you think that this is the word of God, that you will treat it in the same way. Right? So these are the cultural things that, that you should know. And that's why it's difficult sometimes to bring a Muslim to church, because there are these little cultural elements that can be a barrier for them actually receiving uh, the word. So what is the right way according to, um, to handle your Bible the way that they would handle the Quran? I mean, uh, if you... If you go into a home, I would say that don't place anything on top of it. Just treat it as, as you know, a, a book that you will give respect to. Let them see that. When you open it to read, you pray before you open it so that they can see that you really want God to guide you <laughs> as you're opening the word. And of course, you do a contextualized prayer so they understand, <laughs> you know, what you're trying to, trying to do in that moment. So there are different ways. You know, depending also on your relationship with the person, you know, they will understand uh, what you're doing with that Bible. Yeah. But you wouldn't leave it open? Is that what you said? You would not leave it open? No, I'm saying I just wouldn't like put it on a table or anywhere, you know, on a bench or <laughs> things what like that. that depending. What they find extremely yeah. um, offensive is if you put it on the floor. Exactly. So we don't take it as much into consideration today, but they do still, <laughs> right, with their Qurans. Well, one interesting thing that, and that's why I'm bringing this up today, is I come from a Latino community. I'm Colombian by background. And in the Colombian world, uh, if you go to a home of a very religious person, they will do the same with the Bible. They will have the Bible <laughs> in the middle of the house and have it open <laughs> in front of maybe an altar, you know, and have it there. They wouldn't read it but they feel like it gives them some protection <laughs> in their homes as well. So this idea is it's in different cultures, you know, but I'm just bringing this up for you, just you to pay attention that when you're visiting somebody of the Islamic faith, you pay attention how you use your Bible because they respect their, their Quran, you know, and for you not to disrespect the Quran, <laughs> you know, that would, be, that would be very offensive to them, right? So I can talk a lot more about this, but <laughs> let us move on for, for the sake of time. What is exactly in the Quran? The Quran has 144 chapters, sorry, 114 chapters. Uh, the chapters in Arabic are called uh, surahs, and verses are called ayahs, okay? Now, in the Bible, we have different books. We have Genesis, Exodus, etc., which include chapters and verses. In the Quran, the whole Quran is just one book with different chapters and with different verses. And they have different names as well. Every chapter is named after something that is in, within, the, within the story that's been relayed. And so you have um, Surah Al-Maryam, for example, right, which talks about a little bit about Mary's story and, and things like that. Um, these are all the stories that are in the Quran <laughs> that are found in the Bible as well, right? The story of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, etc., etc. So there are a lot of biblical stories in the Quran, but there will be a few changes that you will find to some of the stories. Like I mentioned before, the story of uh, the sacrificing of Abraham's sons, we have a difference there. Um, the story of Joseph, there's a lot of things that are added to that story, right? But the stories are there, and you can find them uh, within the, the Quran. Let me move on to this, and I was just speaking with my friends before um, most of you came by. But within the Muslim world, although there are different types of belief systems within the world itself, 
there are two main strands that are very prominent within the Muslim world. You have the Sunni Muslims and the Shia Muslims. These two groups develop based on a disagreement that happened at the death of Muhammad. When Muhammad died, he did not specify who was supposed to be his successor. And so the community had to decide who they wanted to be the successor of Muhammad. And so one community said, well, we should choose Abu Bakr, which was a companion of Muhammad, a person that was really loyal to him. We should follow him. And that's the group from which we get the Sunni Muslims. The other group said, no, Muhammad's uh, successor should be within his family. And so they call this the Ahl al-Bayt in, in, in Arabic, the, the, the family or the house of the, the Prophet. And they are the ones that became the, the Shia Muslims later on. Now, if you see, 90% of Muslims in the world are Sunni. So they are the dominant group. And about 8 to 10% are going to be Shia. But I was just explaining why this is important for you to know. In Dearborn, where I spend most of my time, most of the people that are in Dearborn are Lebanese and Iraqis who are in that area. And the Lebanese, especially in the south of Lebanon and in Iraq, they are oftentimes sponsored by Iran. <laughs> and most of them are Sunni. Okay? Now, we have been working with some Afghan refugees that have come to the area. And they told us when they were sent to the area, they were sent because the government thought that them being in Dearborn would be good for them because they will be around Muslims. The issue is that the Afghans are Sunni, <laughs> right? And being that they are Sunni, the Shias and Sunnis have issues with each other. Actually, the, the Shias are oftentimes persecuted by the Sunnis within uh, certain countries. And so the, the Afghans didn't feel very much appreciated by the community they were in. So th that little detail alone is very important for you to know as well, right? These differences in, in the way that they um, understand their faith. However, when it comes to practicing the faith, both religions believe in the Quran. They might interpret some things differently, but their practices are very similar. And so you wouldn't find much of a difference, at least in terms of practice. Now, any of you know what the word Islam means? Any idea? <laughs> Submission. Submission. Very good. Very good. The, the word Islam actually comes from the root word salam. I don't know if you speak. Do you speak Arabic? <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> so in Arabic, every, almost every word has a three-letter root. And this one is SLM, which means submission. And since I've been learning Arabic a little bit, <laughs> I can kind of show off a little bit here. But um, in Arabic, when you want to show that somebody is performing an action, you add an, an, a meme, an M, in front of the three-letter root. And so that's where you get the M here from Muslim, <laughs> right? So Islam is the religion, and then the person that performs the action of submission is called a Muslim, a person that is submitting. Um, themselves before God. So the religion is a religion that teaches complete submission to the will of God, the will of Allah. And this is very important for Muslims. They use this phrase a lot, I submit myself under the will of Allah. If Allah wills it, then it will happen. And this is central to their theology. How do you actually become a Muslim? <laughs> Have any of you seen any of your friends becoming or converting to Islam? Well, it's very simple. For us, we go through Bible studies and, and baptism. <laughs> For them, not as much. Uh, they just have to do something called a shahada. Shahada in, in, in Arabic means witness, to witness. They have to witness to this idea that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And so you can go in front of a congregation, the Imam or the Sheikh, the religious leader, will tell you, recite now in Arabic, you have to be in Arabic, and you have to say, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulallah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's how you become a, a, a Muslim. So it's very, very simple. It's considered like baptism for them, yes. Just recite it in front of the congregation and say your, your witness.
Now, this question here has been a big debate among scholars for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why, per se, personally, but I think it's good for us to clarify uh, why this has become a, a big debate. Uh, when you hear the word Allah in the U.S. context, it has a lot of negative connotation and has caused a lot of issues um, here amongst schools and amongst different types of people of faith. But the question is, can I use the word when I'm interacting with my Muslim friends? Well, we have to see first, where did the word come from, <laughs> right? Allah is actually a word in Arabic. There are actually two words. You have the definite article, al, which you use in Arabic for every word, right? Al-bayt, al-siyara, <laughs> you know, al-kitab, the car, the book, the house. So this is the word the and God, al-ilah, all right? The God, that's what Allah actually means. And if you look at the Semitic root, very close to the Hebrew word, it's also the word ilah or iloha, right? From which we get the word Elohim. Have you heard about that word before? <laughs> Elohim, right? So when you use the word Allah, it's simply a word in Arabic. And if I were to go to an Arabic-speaking church, Christian Arabic-speaking church, <laughs> and open up their Bibles and read Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, it would say, in the beginning Allah created the heavens and the earth, in the Christian church. You see, so this word is used both by Christian Arab and, and by Muslims. Now, the debate comes not necessarily from the word, but based on this question. Is the God of the Bible the same as the God taught about in in Islam, right? This has been the big debate. And I don't want to open it up here <laughs> for discussion, but I think that there are two answers that you can give to your Muslim friend, right? On one end, you can say, yes, historically, when you read the Quran, the Quran teaches that both Jews and Christians and Muslims worship the God of Abraham. So they think they're worshiping the God of Abraham. Do you think you're worshiping the God of Abraham? I think so too, right? Oh, sorry, I think I'm touching on my mic. <laughs> so we all worship the God of Abraham. So historically, we believe that this is true. But I think theologically, there's where we have an issue. For the God that is taught in the Quran has a different character from the God that is taught about in the Bible. And so that is where we have our issues, and there's where we can be individuals who can come along Muslims and help them and teach them how to revere and come to know the God, the creator God, and explain in the Bible a little bit better. So is this debate going to stop today because I explained to you? No. <laughs> Many people are going to continue having this debate. But you need to be informed and to be willing to be able to open this up with your Muslim friends when they ask you and to be able to discuss that with them. Any questions on this, by the way, or comments? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, so the question for me is, and trust me, I thought about this because have mm. you heard that? I've heard that, that discussion before, yeah. yes. M my issue will be to, to understand that when I'm ministering to a Muslim, I cannot come to that person and tell them, I've heard that Allah predates, <laughs> right. predates um, your religion. Right. And some people take that to say, and I believe that Allah is the moon god, for example, right? You will start offending <laughs> your you Muslim friends. <laughs> the yeah. you will see the moon. Exactly. But when I discuss that, they say, yes, but this is not in Islam. It's not supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah, but definitely. It yeah, it is there. It is there. So as we read before, I would take the, the counsel of Ellen White, right, who says, Let's start where they are. Let's recognize that they're religious and try not to start by disrespecting them first. Right? The Muslims themselves don't believe that they worship a, a moon god. Right? Actually, the Quran has a, a few verses that say that if you worship any celestial body, you're committing a, a huge sin. Right? So they themselves don't believe that. If I were to come in and then tell them that what you believe in is a moon god, I'm being very uh, paternalistic <laughs> in my approach. You know? I like what Paul did, though. He has a better out than what we have because he addressed the unknown God exactly. without 
acknowledging all these other gods that they had. Exactly. And, like, you can't really do that here. Right, right. Yeah, it, it opens up conversation. I would say that happens even within our own church. <laughs> right? We all have some views that might be a little bit different from our neighbor. And so um, it's a great way to start a conversation. And Muslims love talking about God. You know? Now, if you come in and offend them <laughs> by telling them what they believe, yeah. that's where you close the door. You yeah, see? Yeah. Exactly. I just want to throw the question out there. Exactly. Okay, now let's get you rolling because you like to talk about God just like I do. So exactly. My exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a very intriguing question. I think there's not going to be a settled answer uh, for this one. But as you're mentioning, it's a good starting point for, for a good conversation, especially with your Muslim friend. Yeah. So I will skip over this a little bit, but I think there, there are similarities and differences that we see uh, between uh, both of the characters that are presented. But for sake of time, I wouldn't read them. I can send this PowerPoint to you as well later on if you need to have it. But I do want to go to the five pillars of Islam very quickly. And then at the end, I'm going to show you a bit of the mindset of a person that's within the faith, how they view Christians, and why we should be uh, aware of this. Okay. So in Islam, they recognize five pillars, five foundations for their faith that everybody's required to do. Okay. First of all, we already mentioned the Shahada, which is the witness saying that there is um, no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. As, as my sister mentioned, um, the issue of Muhammad being at the center of that witness is because Muhammad is considered to be the end of all revelation. You know, all the revelations before him um, are corrupted, actually, and I'll explain that later. And Muhammad has received the final revelation that seals all of the rest of the revelations of the prophets. Now, let me go to the second one. Prayer is very important in the Muslim world. Uh, if you travel to a Muslim-majority country, you'll be reminded all the time <laughs> that you have to pray. You will hear the adhan, which is the call to prayer, very loudly. <laughs> it's heard all around the country by different mosques. You know, it, it, it might... You know, it starts as a very simple sound and then grows <laughs> on you. It's very, very strong, right? And Muslims hear this five times a day. Here in the U.S., because they don't have the Adan, you oftentimes find that your friend has an app on their phone that tells them the time that they have to pray. And these times change throughout seasons, uh, depending on, on the movement of the sun or the moon, etc., etc. Now... When they pray, they have to pray a particular way. They have to face Mecca. And in these prayers, as you're seeing this man doing here, Muslims have two ideas of prayer. One is the Salat, which is the more religious one, which you're seeing here. And the other idea of prayer is called a Dua. A Dua is, the, the word in Arabic means call. So when you're speaking with your Muslim friend and you say, I want to pray for you, you can say, I want to make dua for you, <laughs> and they will understand that, right? I, I want to, to call on God with you and, and for you, okay? And I can actually teach you how to do that right now <laughs> since I'm talking about the topic. Usually, I put up my hands like this because this is what they understand as a dua, right? So you hold out your hand like this. And when you're going to pray... You can respectfully tell them, I'm going to pray like you pray, <laughs> if you want them to understand, because Christians pray a different way. And you ask them for their prayer requests. And then use simple words when you're praying. Okay? Simple words they can understand. Don't use King James <laughs> Bible words. Just pray for their families, pray for their friends. And at the end, in your first visit, you can say, in the name of God, amen. But on your next visits, you can tell them, we usually pray in the name of Jesus. Would that be okay with you <laughs> if I pray in the name of Jesus? Ask their permission first to, to do that so that you can maintain that relationship and then explain to them why you pray in the, in the name of Jesus. Okay? When the prayer ends, they're going to do like this. What this means is that I was 
waiting to receive the blessing. And now this blessing is being showered <laughs> upon me and I'm receiving it. And that's how they, they receive that prayer. Also, most of them will not close their eyes when they're praying. So if you're praying with them, you can tell them, I'm going to close my eyes. You don't have to close your eyes. So it might be a little awkward if you keep your eyes open. <laughs> so you can close it, but that's going to happen um, there as well. Right? The, the third pillar will be the zakat. Muslims are required to give about 2% of their income to, um, you know, charity, feeding the poor. They can pay for animals to be sacrificed in Ramadan, which is very important to them to receive uh, the forgiveness of their sins. And here is where an Adventist can actually begin a very fruitful conversation and say, you give 2%, I give 10% <laughs> of my income to be able to help, you know, the community. One thing that I think as Adventists we're very weak on is showing where that 10% goes, <laughs> right? They can say, look, I'm feeding beggars, I'm helping the poor here. We oftentimes sometimes don't really know how to explain <laughs> where our tide goes. So it was good for us to be cognizant of, of how to use that as a but as a new. 2% is only if you have an excess in bank or a savings in bank. So yeah. if you have no savings in bank, you're exempted from any. Yes, you're right. You're right. They, they do teach that if you don't have the means of helping or of giving, then um, that God has mercy upon you because of that. So let me move on to the fourth one. Fasting is very central to the life of of um, the Muslims, but especially in the month called Ramadan. I think you guys have heard of this month. Usually comes around April, I would say, around that time. Again, it depends on the movement of the celestial bodies. And one of the things that is really interesting, they don't eat or drink, or sometimes the most conservative won't even swallow their own saliva, <laughs> right? And this starts from the rising of the sun until the, the end of the day, when the sun goes down, all right? So they spit it, spit it out. If you go to countries that, are, that have warmer weather, you oftentimes see in Ramadan that the men are spitting on the floor, so not to swallow their saliva, yeah. So there are some exemptions. For example, if you're traveling uh, to, uh, to a very far place, then you don't have to fast. If you are on your period, <laughs> then you are unclean before God, so you don't have to perform the fast. So there, if you're pregnant, that also exempts you in a certain way. So there are different um, elements there that, that they understand that wouldn't require you to fast. And so it is believed that in this month, Allah descended from heaven and gave the Quran to Muhammad, and that's why they revere uh, the month of Ramadan. Ramadan is actually the best month for you to connect with a Muslim <laughs> because they're very open in that month to, they're supposed to be very gracious with their giving. Uh, so they're open to giving food and uh, inviting you to their homes. And it's just a wonderful time to be able to connect with a Muslim in your area, to go to their mosque, to be able to know them better. And so make sure that you're well acquainted with that, that month. And finally, the pilgrimage, the, the Hajj, I just mentioned, we mentioned that before. It can, it, every Muslim, if they're able to, uh, financially is required to go to Mecca at least one time in their lives um, to be able to, to follow Muhammad's example. All right. Uh, let me end here by mentioning some assumptions that Muslims have about Christianity. I think this is one that's very important for us to know. I want you to think of this as the way that a Muslim thinks about you, <laughs> right? And how they think about their religion in, in general, okay? In the mind of a Muslim, I'm using this very broadly, of course. Muslims have different beliefs, but usually they look at religion in this particular order. They believe that God first chose Abraham to tell his people that they were supposed to stop worshiping, uh, worshiping idols and bring them back to the worship of one God. This was Abraham's central message, right? And through Abraham, later on, Moses received from God a book called the Torah, which is, we know as the Torah. 
And so Moses received that central message, and he was able to preach that to the people of Israel, which became his people. But it is believed that the people of Israel backslided, and they corrupted their religion to the point where they corrupted that book that Moses was, was given. And so today, if you tell a Muslim, you know, um, you should go and read the Torah, they will tell you that Torah doesn't exist. <laughs> the Israelites corrupted that book. So that but today is not present, right? Number one. So they believe because these sacred books were corrupted, God again had to send another prophet to be able to rectify the corruption that was done by the Israelites. So he sent the prophet Jesus. And Jesus, through the preaching of uh, the faith again to his community, was able to gather up a community called Christians. And they were the ones that were following a particular book that was given to Jesus to again bring them to the worship of one God. However, they believe that Christians again decided to backslide, started worshiping idols, and in particular raised Jesus as part of the Godhead, right? And made him into an idol. And because of this, we as Christians corrupted the, the gospel that was given to Jesus. Right? So our book is also corrupted, according to at least the majority of what the Muslims believe. So if you ask a Muslim today, well, why don't you go read the Bible, the, the Gospels? They will say, which one? You have four of them. <laughs> which one of the four is the right one? <laughs> right? And they will say, well, because you have four, that already shows you that it was corrupted. The right book, the book that Jesus was given is not here. You can't find it. So because of that, in the seventh century, Muhammad was raised as the one that will restore right, all the corruption that was done. And he was given now the final revelation to call the people back to the worship of one God. And because of that, they believe, as was mentioned, Muhammad is the seal of the prophets because now he's able to restore all of the messages that were lost and most Muslims will tell you the Quran has everything that you need, right, in it from the former revelations. And so that's why that book becomes the central book of their faith. Now, this goes actually contrary to the Quran itself. <laughs> because the Quran, there are many verses in the Quran that say that in order for you to be a, a real Muslim, follower of God, you have to follow the former revelations. I mean, the Torah, the Zabur mentioned by David, the Injil given by Jesus and also the Quran. And so they're neglecting their, their own fate when they say this. But I'm telling you, this is the mind, the way that most of them will see this. And so that's why if you come to a Muslim today and say, hey, I just wanted to give you a gift today, and you hand them a, a Bible, <laughs> they will say, no, that's, that's corrupt. <laughs> that's corrupt. I, I can't read this, this book. This, this is a corrupt book. This is actually one of the biggest issues that you have when mis uh, witnessing to a Muslim. It's getting them to actually believe that this book is the actual word of God. Right? It's one of the biggest issues that you have. And so I will not go into the discussions today. I have four of them that are here, the four biggest obstacles that you have in ministering. But I want to end today by showing you this so that you can have a framework when you're working with your Muslim neighbor to see how they see the progression of religion. And as we have seen the other aspects of the religion before, I want us to end by thinking, how can we as Christians connect with them already through this faith that is so deep and broad in, in its belief? There's so many connections that we have, and, and we can find ways, there are definitely ways for us to be able to allow the Bible, the scriptures, to be that bridge for them to come to really know who God is, right? So I wanna open up the, the floor. Uh, if you've seen anything throughout the presentation today that you say, man, I could use that to connect with my Muslim friend. Have you seen anything today? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, it's tough. One of the things that we do have to recognize, and I'll talk a little bit about that on Thursday, is that um, here we are talking about the Arab world. They are an oral culture. And so sometimes it helps for us to memorize the Bible, <laughs> memorize the stories in scripture, 
so that instead of taking a book, we can actually go and share with them through oral stories that gets them interested into getting their hands on, on, on scripture. So that's one way um, that I've seen, at least from my studies of the different methods that are used. Usually it's told for us to memorize our scripture very well in order to be able to share those stories uh, with the individuals. I don't know if anybody's had any other experience um, here with, with that issue. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the biggest arguments that you can use, not verbally, <laughs> one of the biggest arguments is actually you living out the life of Christ, right? As you're following the scripture, they're seeing that power revealed in your life. And there's no argument against that, <laughs> you know? And, and something later on I will show on Thursday, one of the main things that attract Muslims to Christianity is the life of the Christian, right? The friend that they're engaged with. And as they're seeing you look, you know, looking at scripture and applying that to your life, they want to know why, <laughs> you know, why are you doing this? What is it in here that's causing you to live that type of life? You know, so it's, it's very interesting. I think that's a very good point because my understanding of the history is the reason they call uh, Christians Right, right. And, and of course, the, the Quran itself mentions that Muhammad, when he had some issues in understanding his revelation, he had to go back to the people of the book. That's what the, the Christian Jews were called. <laughs> you know, he had to go back and learn from them. And so there's something there that, that we have that we can use even from the Quran to show them, hey, your book is calling you back, <laughs> you know, to, to see how we live and how we have treated this book for all these centuries. Uh, there, there, is, there is the fact that oftentimes some Muslims will associate Christian with Westerner. You know, that's a big association. And so when they look at what is happening, let's say here in America, if somebody goes and, and shoots a mosque, <laughs> right, they will associate a Christian went and shot <laughs> the people in the mosque. It could be anybody, <laughs> but they will say it was a Christian because it's a person from the West. You see, so that association is there um, very heavily. And then comes everything else that is associated with the West that you're mentioning, drinking and, you know, living an immoral life and things like that. So, yes, we have to be very careful with the terms that we use. But that, again, comes with the relationship that you have with the person. Yes. They, they believe that there was an actual book in heaven <laughs> that was inspired by God, and God allowed that book to be given to Gabriel, and Gabriel brought it down to Muhammad. And everything is literally said, right? It's verbally transferred from heaven to Gabriel to Muhammad, word by word. And so when Muhammad would recite that to his people, no, he didn't, he didn't know how to read. He could recite it, and when he would recite it, the people who listened to him would write it down on different things, on leaves, rocks, whatever. And at a certain point, those were collected, and then that is what produced the Quran. With no errors. With no errors at all. <laughs> no single error. Now, historically, we can make a case that, <laughs> you know, there, there have been different versions of the Quran, historically. And uh, I would say non-Muslim and non-Christian historians have been able to show uh, different manuscripts of different Qurans, you know. And also you have the issue that a few years after Muhammad had died, there was a caliph that actually noticed that there were different recitations of the Quran that was going on. And he decided to choose one of them as the main one and then burn all the other rest of the Qurans that were <laughs> around, <laughs> okay. And so there's those historical issues there that can show that the Quran that they're using today might not be the Quran that was used <laughs> when Muhammad was present, right? There's even a discussion, I don't want to go too far, but there's even a discussion if Muhammad was an actual person, <laughs> right? If he even existed. That's a very big discussion that's going on too, you know? I'm just giving you, <laughs> sorry? Not among the Muslims, of course, <laughs> but... Um, amongst historians, 
they, they're saying, well, was he an actual person? Even to that extent, there's some discussions that are going on. Again, I don't bring those things up because that becomes very offensive <laughs> if you're going to interact with, with someone from the Islamic faith. But, you know, you read and you try to understand better, you know, the history in order at some point to have a more, uh, I would say, informed conversation if those topics do, do come up. Yeah. A good book that I would recommend is um, to read a little bit on the Quran. Sorry, I, I can't remember the, the author, but it's called 30 Questions About the Quran, something like that. Let me get it for you really quickly here. If I have, oh no, I don't have internet. I'll get it to you later. I'll give it to you. But this book was just written last year, and it has, every chapter has a question that the person deals with. Uh, about the Quran and how it's used. He's an Egyptian Christian, and he grew up, of course, in that environment, and so he writes on his experiences with, with that as well. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? I think we're over time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to attract them at some point to Scripture. So what I start off doing personally is Again, I mentioned they're an oral community. I will talk about this later on. So anytime they want to share a doctrine with me, they will start off by saying, there is this saying about the Prophet Muhammad that he did this and this and this, <laughs> right? They use a book called the Hadiths. These are the sayings of the Prophet or the Sunnahs, which are the, the example of the life of the Prophet. And so they use these stories to teach you a, a particular lesson in their faith. And so what I will do is once they're done with their story, I would say, oh, I also remember that Jesus, peace be upon him, also used to do this, and I will share a story from Scripture. And it comes to a point where they become so interested in the life of Jesus that they want to visit the Scripture. See, but it's through oral stories that I get them to connect to the Bible. If I come the first day like this, let us read from the book of Psalms. <laughs> no, that is completely going to <laughs> cut them off at the start, you know? So help them to, to gain confidence in, in the Word. And sometimes there are a few verses that you can use, actually, for the Bible to defend itself, if they tell you that. You can show them, no, 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 the Bible says that no word, right? No, no, till, how do you say it in English? Uh, no dot or till will be changed. You can show them that in Scripture, and that can throw something off as well. They say, okay, let me <laughs> take this into consideration. So there are different ways for you to be able to interact. But we'll talk about that on Thursday. We'll talk a little bit more about that. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22, or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.